Hello. Hi, and welcome to the Science Basement Podcast. Episode number 19. I wow. Yeah, yeah. How are you today, Stephanie? I'm really good. How are you? You just came back from vacations. Yes. Yes, I have I had vacay and now back to work. Yes. <sighs> Let's go to our guest. Yes, I'm very happy to introduce Camille Belanger Champagne. That's my pronunciation of it. She's a postdoc researcher at the Helsinki Institute for Physics in the technology program. She has been since 2015, and she's looking at instrument for nuclear safeguards. So welcome. I'm happy to be here. Camille, what are these nuclear safeguards? So safeguards is a word that I think was invented um, to describe all of the policy and inspection and verification aspects of nuclear material that have to do with non-proliferation, nuclear non-proliferation. That is, the international agreements and treaties that have to do with the countries who do not have nuclear weapons, agreeing that they would never will try to build one, and the countries that have nuclear weapons, agreeing to disclose how much they have and allow people to inspect them. So um, when the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty was signed, um, a new international agency was founded, the um, International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA. And every country that signs the treaty, as part of signing the treaty, agrees that IAEA inspectors can come to their facilities and check that they are only using nuclear material for peaceful and civilian activities. And so IAEA safeguards are both the policies and the inspections and the technologies that allow them. That's the umbrella word. And so we work on the technology side of things. We build the instruments that the inspectors use. Uh-huh. So basically the instruments you are, you are building are the, the instruments that the inspectors will use when they are going to check how much nuclear uh, energy is used. How much nuclear... Well, in this specific, um, this specific context, uh, where I work with nuclear fuel specifically, so you can be inspecting weapons, you can be inspecting industrial sites that use nuclear material as part of their operations, or you can be inspecting power plants. That's a very typical thing to inspect. A lot of the nuclear material in the world is used in power plants. Um, and so when you go to inspect a power plant, you can be looking at the fuel that hasn't been in the reactor yet, or the fuel that was pulled out of the reactor after typically a few years. Mm-hmm. Um, the material that hasn't been in the reactor yet isn't very dangerous um, in the sense that it is not very radioactive. It has a lot of potential um, for energy release, but it is not in and of itself very radioactive. On the contrary, the nuclear fuel that comes out of the reactor is one of the most radioactive things that we handle on a regular basis. It is a very complex cocktail of activated bits and fission products that is very, very long-lived and very, very radioactive. Um, And in particular, it has both um, a little bit of fissile uranium left, but it has plutonium in it. If you started with uranium, 
you will have plutonium in your spent fuel. And that is the golden target for material to make bombs out of. Mm. And so what the inspectors do um, in the scenarios that we work with is they look at the nuclear material after it has come out of the reactor and they make sure that everything that was pulled out of the reactor is still in the storage facility. Oh, okay. So that nobody took some of the yeah, yeah. material out to extract the plutonium and make a bomb. Okay, so yeah, checking that nobody's been has been smuggling plutonium. Yeah. Okay, but what how to how to get rid of these uh, pro by by products of of the oh you have to wait <laughs> you have to wait for them to decay oh basically so you just put them in a big storage room and wait yeah. that they decay and wait oh. you know a hundred thousand years <laughs> um, <laughs> which is not very practical so in Finland the plan is that uh, we will dig a very very big hole that is very, very deep in a very, very stable rock formation. And then we will put the stuff there um, and then seal it and then leave it be for 100,000 years. In this scenario, so, so far, th that facility doesn't exist. It's under construction. Um, it should start being an active facility where fuel is brought underground somewhere in the mid-2020s. So in eight to 10 years. Um, so for now, all of the spent fuel that has come out of the two power plants in Finland is just at the power plants, waiting in a room under 10 meters of water where no one goes unless they have a good reason to be there. Mm -hmm. And what we will do, we are building a, a measurement station so that every time that the fuel is going to come out of this storage before it gets shipped underground. It will be measured and characterized. In Finland, the risk of that the state is trying to build a nuclear weapon is really low. But the IAEA still wants us to measure every assembly, um, figure that, and, and make sure that it is intact, um, and keep uh, records of that. In part because the older fuel that has been in storage for 40 years sometimes is not well labeled anymore or some of the records might not exist anymore. So there's a blanket policy that everybody needs to do that every time they take material for final storage. Um, as a point of national pride maybe for Finns, uh, Finland is the first country that actually is going ahead and making a real plan and actually doing this permanent storage kind of infrastructure. A lot of countries have the idea that they will do similar long-term solutions, uh, but a lot of them have been very slow into making the decisions and, and preparing to go ahead. But Finland is very determined to get it done pretty soon. And so the, there's been a lot of mining. The, the, most of the facility is built already. and and um, it is a, a very advanced project at this stage. Okay. So I have a question related to that, because, of course, nuclear energy is a very important source of clean energy. Like, once you have, once you have a power plant, it's built, the actual... Well, it, it doesn't release greenhouse gases. gases. Yeah. You can argue about whether or not generating... Nuclear waste is a clean thing to sure, do, but it's, true, yeah, yeah. It, it does not generate greenhouse yeah, gases. Greenhouse so, yeah, gases. sure. Um, but there's still one a thing of, of course, you have this radioactive material and how to deal with it, like you were just saying about this containment or so on. 
And then the other is just the idea that nuclear is still scary yeah. when you think about nuclear because of nuclear weapons. And also, I'll, I'll point out that the mining of uranium is not the cleanest thing in the world either. Okay. In terms of, well, just mining operations in general tend to, uh, can have um, effects on the water table and, and this sort of thing. So you have to be very careful whenever you mine um, anything, really. Okay, so now I have now two questions. <laughs> Although uranium is not as bad as uh, coal mining, okay. for example. But there are still risks and issues around mining in general. So can you sort of just state, is it, it, should people worry that there are nuclear um, plants? Nuclear plants, because I think we, plants, did you say plants? Um, because, <laughs> because we are, we have the technology to be, to work with this more safely and not have a Chernobyl again. And the other question now, when you were talking about mining, I read there's a possibility that you can recycle this spent fuel, but how... Practical is that really? Uh, lots of places. Okay, I'm going to take the second one first because I'm more comfortable <laughs> talking about it in the sense that it's more in my wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of countries already uh, reuse their fuel. So when in a typical reactor like the ones in Finland, um, when you put the fuel in, it is 4% or so enriched uranium. Um, and by the time it comes out, it there's still about 1% uranium-235, which is the isotope you want for fission. Um, this is because once you have used up sort of your three extra percent, because natural occurrence of 235 uranium is also about 1%. So you enrich it, and then you use up your enrichment to generate energy, and then you would like to keep going. You would like to burn out all of the 235, but there's enough detritus and waste and accumulated other isotopes in the fuel at that point that you can no longer sustain the chain reaction that you need for energy generation. Maybe we should have backtracked and we should have talked about how a power plant, a nuclear power plant works at some point. But I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep running. So there is still about the same amount of uranium that you have in natural uranium ore um, in your fuel, fissile uranium. Um, and you have plutonium, you can burn the plutonium, you can fission the plutonium um, as well. So many countries, in particular, most famously France, um, take their spent fuel, grind it up real quick, do chemical separation of the isotopes, re-enrich new rods with a mixture of uranium and plutonium, it's called mixed oxide fuel, and reuse that again. Um, It's a really costly process Um, in terms of money, um, in terms of energy. It generates different kinds of waste. So the waste that comes out of uh, reprocessing the fuel to make new fuel with it, um, it generates lower activity waste, but some of it is longer lived. Some of it is in liquid form. So that's really nasty um, because it can get in the water. So what you want to do is you have to take the extra step of taking all of the liquid that come from the chemical dissolution that are now radioactive and vitrify them before you can get rid of them. So there's lots of steps. It's a very complex process. Um, And there's more chance that someone can at some point steal your plutonium. So the countries that do a lot of reprocessing tend to be the countries that have nuclear weapons because they have 
the infrastructure in place to extract plutonium from things okay. and enrich plutonium. Um, and they are under a different non-proliferation regimen than the countries that don't have nuclear weapons. But it's not impossible. It's quite widely done. Um, and there are upsides and downsides. But the, the resources of uranium of the planet are not infinite. Um, and so at some point, there will be a, much like there is for fossil fuels, there will be a crunch where all of the easily accessible uranium is going to be gone and the prices are going to start to go up. What was the first question? Um, how safe is nuclear Oh, right. Power? That's really not my specialty, right? Um, I, I came to um, apply nuclear physics from more fundamental research because I thought it was interesting and I thought that a lot of people have worked very hard to build these systems in place and, and we need to manage them safely and I'd rather we encourage um, good scientists to work with nuclear materials management. Um, I'm not a specialist of the reactor itself and the reactor safety systems themselves. I think that people who hope that um, nuclear power is going to go away entirely are maybe a little naive. I think that there, it's very, um, there are places in the world where, in the developing world, where this is the best in the sense that it is the cheapest and most resource available way to generate more power to raise the living level of the population of this part of the world. Um, and I think that it's a little bit unfair to tell people that they shouldn't do it. Um, most R&D in reactor technology at the moment that I'm aware of um, focuses on having building and new types of reactors that cannot melt down. Um, and I think that that's a good thing to do. But I I am of the personal philosophy that there has been nuclear power use for 50 years and we need to deal with the results of that as best we can. Um, and I leave to other people the decision as to more, as if to more nuclear capacity needs to be built. Uh, so now I have a couple of questions, like let's go back. So Yeah, I'd like to talk about my instrument <laughs> again. <laughs> yeah, apart from that, but first a couple of like very basic questions. So if I understood correctly, we have two power plants in Finland? Yes. Okay, where are they? They are in Lovisa and uh -huh. Olkiluoto. Okay. Uh, Lovisa is a couple of hours um, east of Helsinki along the coast and um, Olkiluoto is near Rauma, a little bit north of Turku. Olkiluoto is also the site of that where we are building the final storage facility. Oh, yes, facility. that was my other question. Okay, where is the facility? Okay, it's okay. just next to the, the, the Olkiluoto power plant. Yeah. Okay, and how does a reactor work? <laughs> <laughs> um, there's different types of reactors and whatnot. So I'll, I'll talk. I will continue to focus on, on what happens in Finland um, because I think it's most, most relevant for the people listening, hopefully, and also because that's what I know best. Uh, but the, the general idea of um, nuclear fission is that when you take a nucleus of a fissile isotope and you break it apart, the sum of the ground state energies of the two fissile, fission fragments is much, much lower than this nucleus ground state energy of the 
thing you just broke. And the remaining energy is available. Um, usually what happens is that, um, so you break up this uranium-235 and you expel at very high speed neutrons. Um, and that's where the, the energy goes. It goes into the kinetic um, energy of the neutrons. And then these neutrons knock on other um, nuclei in the uranium of the reactor. I'm always talking about uranium-235, which is the fissile isotope, and impact just enough energy to that 235 nucleus to also make it break apart and liberate more neutrons. And you go and you cascade through. Now, generally, for each, on average, when you break apart a uranium nucleus, you get more than one neutron. So you will have a chain reaction that is kind of explosive mm -hmm. because you go from one to like three to like 20. <laughs> um, so that's not so good. <laughs> well, that's how you get bombs out of uranium. Um, but to get steady power, you have in your reactor some uh, countering forces. You have control rods, for example, or poison rods, which are words that you might have heard before that um, suck up neutrons through other interactions and don't liberate neutrons. And so the the way that you run a reactor for energy production is that you balance this reaction so that you have uh, just enough neutrons created to keep the reaction going, but not so many that, that you mm. that you lose control and that you have a, a rapid multiplication of the neutron flux. Mm, okay, uh, In a, that's a sort of a, the, the most basic, most conventional reactor. And you control that by controlling the amount of uh, neutron poison or neutron sink that you put in, in your reactor. Okay, and now that we have all the basic information about how does a power plant work uh, and, and how many of them we have in Finland and stuff, now the scene is all for you to talk about your instrument. Yeah, <laughs> so our instrument is an imager. So... What it does is it uses one type of emission, radioactive emission, gamma rays. And the gamma rays that are, that are ish, um, emitted by spent fuel mostly come from a couple different isotopes called cesium-134, cesium-137, europium-154, and um, praseodymium-144. So... If you have fuel, it is incredibly dense stuff. It's mostly made up of uranium. And if you have, if you're, and it's also packed in a lattice of these little fuel rods that make one bundle of fuel. And if you try to see visually if all of the fuel is there, well, first of all, you're going to, if you actually go with your eye, you're going to take a massive dose of radioactivity. And that's not good for you. <laughs> but also, even if you could stick your eye safely there, you physically cannot see past the first few layers because the spacing between the individual little fuel rods in the bundle um, is a couple millimeters. So what you want to do is you want to do the same thing that you want 
that you do when you try to take an image of someone's brain. You want to look into it without having to cut it open. Um, and you do exactly the same thing that you do when you want to look into someone's brain. You take a bunch of detectors and you make them rotate around the entire head of someone and take images with mm -hmm. a PET scanner uh, or yeah. of slices, basically. an MRI or something like that. Well, we do the same thing, except we don't have a radioactive source on one side and a detector on the other side that are rotating to take the images. Our radioactive source is the fuel. And we just have the detector going around, taking slices mm -hmm. of the material and then reconstructing an image, much like you would do in medical imaging, except for some challenges, <laughs> uh, which have to do with whatever you're imaging in someone's body, it's mostly water. Because everything in your body is mostly water. Even your bone, which are the densest thing in your body. The density is not that different. Uranium is incredibly dense. It stops gamma rays very efficiently. And so it's very challenging to um, see the innermost parts of the fuel uh, with, with this technique because only one in a thousand or one in 10,000 of the gamma rays that come from the um, innermost parts of the fuel actually make it out. So you end up in your, the data that you collect, you have a very strong imbalance between the contributions from the different parts of the fuel because of the attenuation of the fuel. And you have to try to correct for that or deal with that in some way when you do your image analysis. And so this is um, something that we work on a little bit. So we've done a lot of imaging without trying to explicitly figure out how to deal with the attenuation so that we have a baseline of like, what, how well can we do when we assume that the attenuation is not too bad. Um, and the answer is, well, we don't do that great. We do okay, we don't do that great. But if we want to do better, we need to do um, something about our understanding of the uranium attenuation. And so we've been working uh, with people in the math department that are specialists of inverse problems, trying to develop, using our understanding of the physics and their understanding of uh, imaging inversion algorithms to try to reconstruct at the same time where is the dense stuff and how much does the dense stuff emit. Mm -hmm. um, and absorb. And absorb. Exactly. Cool, and that's a very great example of physics and mathematics working together. Yeah, yeah. So. I had an episode on about Yeah, about inverse problems, yes. yes. Um, so this is the part of the instrument that I have worked with the most. Um, but there's one pretty major weakness, um, which is that, as I mentioned at the start of this explanation, when we're doing these images, we're measuring how much gamma ray emission we have. And the things that emit gamma rays, um, cesium, europium, they are fission products. They are not fissile material. What we want to make sure of is that all the fissile material is still there. So it's only sort of half of the things you have to measure because you could imagine that someone could take out some of the material and replace it with a gamma emitter rod. They can take fresh fuel, fuel that hasn't been in the reactor before, and add cesium to it somehow. And it would look the same to 
a gamma imager. So we, in order to be more safeguardy, our instrument station has the gamma imager and it also has a neutron measurement because some of the things that, is, that are left over in the fuel after it has been in the reactor are also spontaneous neutron emitters. They undergo spontaneous fission and emit neutrons at a rate that is low enough that you do not, but there isn't enough neutron emission and there isn't enough uranium in the fuel to cause problems. But there is a steady flux of neutrons coming from the fuel and if you check on these neutrons, you can have an idea, you can construct a measurement system that tells you if you still have fissile material left. Because one thing I didn't say is that in order to induce fission of uranium-235, the neutron that comes in and knocks on it has to, be, has to have pretty low energy. It has to be a so-called thermal neutron. And there's a whole lot of, thermal neutrons are really handy for lots of things. But if you have a very fast neutron, it will not typically induce fission if it bumps into uranium-235. Um, and so what we can do is change the balance of thermal neutrons to non-thermal neutrons in our instrument, take two separate measurements, and see if we can tell from our two separate measurements, one's when we have more thermal neutrons and one when we have less thermal neutrons, if there were some fissile material reactions. So this is a more complicated, less easy to explain measurement because this is not a kind of measurement that everybody's familiar with from medical science, for example. Mm -hmm. But the idea is that in one situation, you have more thermal neutrons, which means that you will, if you have any plutonium, and uranium left in your fuel, your total neutron flux is gonna be some number. That is gonna be higher than the number when you actually soak up some of the thermal neutrons by putting a neutron poison near um, your assembly. And then when you, the, the ratio of these two measurements is proportional in a very complex way to the amount of multiplicative fissile material in, in the assembly. And that's the second half of the, of the measurement. So that gives you the proof that there is fissile material, but what it doesn't tell you is if anything is missing, it doesn't tell you where. And it, it's also only one number, so it's a little bit trickier to notice that a very small amount of material is missing. But by combining a, a measurement of the neutrons and a measurement of the gamma rays, then you build an instrument that is very hard to trick because you need to emit the correct amount of neutrons and the correct amount of gammas in all of the locations where you expect gammas. Mm -hmm. oh. So that's starting to be quite a, bit of a, yeah. quite a bit of a challenge for people to try to remove or replace material. Mm -hmm. Now I have no idea how you make a bomb, but could, it <laughs> be, could you take just a little bit from each rod pack? Well then, yes, but then the, the way to catch that is not our instrument. The way to catch that is much more low tech. 
there is, you know, a camera. Okay. Just <laughs> looking at the room. And it's easy to disable a camera for like 15 minutes or an hour. It's very, very hard to disable a camera for days and days and days while you go and remove a little bit of... So there are all sorts of... The, the instrumentation is the place where we do physics. Um, but it's only one of the systems that go into the whole surveillance okay. complex. And, and so there's, there's very, very low-tech ways that we use. What we, I say we, not me. Uh, but that um, inspection agencies and power plants used to keep track of things. So our instrument isn't supposed to catch everything, but it's supposed to catch some of the subset of scenarios and then things like camera, video cameras and just weighing trucks when they go in and out of the, of the power plants. And then these very sort of simple things, they are all done as well, yeah. of course, um, to make the whole thing as safe as possible. Um, and this instrument uh, um, is used to measure stuff after it comes out of the reactor, right? Yeah. Uh, would it work the same if you measure the fuel before? Or anyway, you have to know what is going in before, I mean, before you can then compare yeah. it with what, what are the byproducts. So how does it work? So the neutron measurement part of it can work. Um, you have to measure much, much, much longer because the, the neutron flux... Um, it's much slower. The gamma part doesn't work at all because before it's been in the reactor, the fuel does not emit mm -hmm. gamma rays. Um, there are. It is important to characterize the fuel before it goes in the reactor, and the people who manufacture the fuel do it very carefully in ways I don't know. <laughs> I just know that it is done very carefully, and and then um, there is a you know technical set of information that is given to the people who run the reactor because they need to know that. Yeah. How does your day look like? You said you work with mathematicians, for example. What what kind of, yeah, as a researcher, what do you do practically? Uh, I spend my day at a computer programming, <laughs> like most researchers yeah. these days. Um, my tasks have had a lot to do with um, the simulation side of things because when you design an instrument, Typically, you will start by with some ideas and run simulations, um, but also uh, doing all of the data processing and the image reconstruction. So the data from our very real instrument, unlike the simulated data that it generate, which is perfect, the data from the real instrument, um, there's a lot of experimental effects that we have to take into account. And this is a, the instrument that we have. So the gamma instrument, we have a prototype, we've used it at power plants, it works okay. Um, but there are challenges that are due to the fact that this is a prototype and it's not perfect. The neutron instrument that I've been describing, uh, we are building the prototype now. So we only have simulation information for it. Um, I've spent a lot of time in the last sort of year looking at the data from um, the power plants for the gamma instrument and figuring out which detectors were working not so well, can we correct for um, bad efficiency or for noisy detector, noisy electronics, how do we do that best? Um, we then reconstruct images 
and we need to figure out if our images are good enough. How do we, how do we know an image is good enough? How do we decide that this image is better than that image? You know, we have algorithms that we are testing, but we need a criteria. And nobody has ever had an instrument. This is the one instrument in the world that actually makes these images of these gamma ray images of fuel. So nobody has a criteria that's ready-made for us to say this image is better than that image. We have to say, well, what do we need? Our goal is that the places where there is no fuel look very different from the places where there is fuel. How can we mathematically describe that um, and then test the different algorithms based on these criteria? So that has been my day is, is a lot of time at a computer. So like if these instruments are prototypes and they are still being studied and, and, and designed and, and so on, how are the measurements done today? Uh, so the measurements done today cannot tell you the difference between this prototype and the measurements that are done today is sort of how much fuel you need to remove before you say, ooh, there's fuel missing, right? And with our instrument, we think that if you remove a single out of a hundred little pins in the fuel lattice, we will be able to tell. Currently, you could remove about like 50% of the middle and mm-hmm. you wouldn't necessarily be able to, to tell. Um, there, the, the sort of workhorse instrument for Euratom in the IAEA to measure spent fuel is something called a fork detector. Um, it has also um, gamma ray and neutron detectors, but the only thing that it does is taking a total neutron count measurement and a gamma ray spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, you can learn a lot from, from these things, but because you get only one total measurement as opposed to an imaging measurement, small differences like removing only a little bit of material are in the statistical uncertainty level of the measurement, whereas in an image, you localize your information and you need small, you can pick out smaller discrepancies. Now I have a question related to, I just thought about this imaging idea. I was reading that new technologies are trying to find a a different way to contain this uranium material. So going from rods to, I was reading for example, a sphere. Mm -hmm. So if you have new, new technologies in that sense, how will this affect, for example, your instrument? It depends a little bit on on uh, what happens exactly. To a certain extent, it doesn't matter. <laughs> for the perspective of, of, of this instrument and Finland, because Finland has 40 years of accumulated fuel that it needs to put underground first. And... It is planning to take a few decades just to deal with the fuel that we have already used up in in Finland. So by the time we run out, by the time a different kind of fuel can come to market and be used in Finland, um, the lifetime of this instrument is going to be well, well past. Um, There are probably all sorts of, of possibilities to adapt the methods um, you probably without you might not need to change the sensors or the generic principle, but you might need to change the geometry of of the instrument. Presumably, on that time scale, you will also have better sensors right, because yeah. sensor technology yeah. is developing um, quite rapidly. 
we need sensors that are uh, quite radiation hard, uh, meaning that um, they can tolerate um, being quite close to large sources of radiation without degrading too much. We need sensors that can operate in relatively warm temperatures because we operate in the cooling pools of the power plants. The water temperature at the bottom of the cooling pools is about 50 Celsius, which is non-trivial sometimes. Um, so, but semiconductor sensors are ongoing at the moment, quite rapid technological development. So I am sure that in 10 to, after the instrument we are building based on the results of our prototype for use in Finland for the first sort of 15 to 20 years of operations, I'm sure that by that point, there will be tons of reasons to do an upgrade anyway, because there will, we will have access to better sensors, better electronics, um, and, and if there's a need to adapt to different fuel types, then that will be a good point to do it. Yeah, okay. And it's a really, really quick question. Do you work with the Radiation and Nuclear Safety Authority in Finland? Still? I do a lot, actually. Okay, so. um, we work. They have a safeguards division, um, and, and we work with them very closely. They're the ones who let us manage for us for example, permission to go to power plants. Okay. <laughs> so they are a critical uh, partner. It's actually um, sort of their idea to partner with HIP to work on these topics and not the other way around. Okay. So, yes. Nice. Cool. Now, this is a very, very interesting um, subject, definitely. And now, little break from, from all the science because we're going to play Cytagory, which still will contain some science. So we will have five categories. You, uh, Camille, will uh, generate a random letter from, from Stephanie's app. And uh, we have these five categories. As I said, uh, we have two minutes to fill all of them with words or stuff that belong, begins with the letter that you will extract. So the five categories for this episode will be, number one, things that glow. Number two, sources of energy. And now we learned a lot about nuclear energy. Uh, number three is radioactive things. Um, number four is because uh, we know that you like to ski, so you like it a lot, so we will have places to ski. And number five, as a funny name, is called Everything is a Ruler. Yeah, that's stolen from Hauski, uh, our now retired lab engineer. <laughs> So yeah, everything is a ruler, which means measuring devices. So what we can use for measuring stuff. So if you generate the letter, Camille? M. M. Okay. Uh, we, I will start the timer now. If I manage to open it. Yes. Three, two, one, now. Let's start. Uh, okay. Radioactive things. Okay, this is just well, keep mo mo I would say uh, meteorites glow as they enter the atmosphere. Oh, cool. Oh. Yes. Meteorites. Places to ski, they're in like a kind of like Montpellier in France. Uh, I don't know if there are mountain, mountain, lots of mountains or ski resorts there. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> At least mountains. Yeah, mountains <laughs> are places to ski. <laughs> yes, mountains. We, we missed the forest for the trees. Um, <laughs> Um, okay, so sources of energy. Meals. Oh, meals. We can have a meal and go for a run. Spend oh, our energy. Oh, yes. Radioactive things. How about like mountains? <laughs> because of some rocks. Yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah. 
Well, yeah, but okay. Or mines. 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 Yeah. I mean, we, we just learned that you can mine uranium. <laughs> True. Nice. Mines. Okay, so everything mm-hmm. is a ruler. The last one. Measurer. Um, a measurer for measuring. See, I default to French whenever these things come up because that's my <laughs> mother tongue, and that makes it really hard. Because <laughs> um, metronome. There you go. Oh, oh nice. yes. And with that one, especially if you play an instrument. Metronome. And we are done with how much time left? 30 seconds. I will just stop it, I guess. Yes. That was a great job. That was easy. But I guess M is, is quite uh, Hey, nice. uh, Stephanie, we always get like very, very bad letters for once. We yes. can just be great. Be happy that we have. Yes. Let's go for the second one then. B. B. I, it was going almost at X. I yes. like <laughs> You called for this one. Okay, let's start. Three, two, one. Now. Things that glow. Bulbs. Yes. Light for sure. Yes. Good boobs. Sources of energy. Oh, and bioluminescence organisms. <laughs> True. It's really pretty in the. Can we put the bioluminescent fishes that are like in the deep seas? They're super cool and yes, cute. Bioluminescent. Sources of energy. Ben. Oh, but benzene is like in German. It's not. No, benzene. That's no, that works. Gas. I think that works. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I don't even know to. A biofuel, anyway. Oh, <laughs> biofuel, okay. That's biofuel. also the cheap way. <laughs> Make everything bio. Um, but benzene is like oil, uh, gas. Yeah, okay, okay. Cars. Uh, radioactive things. Uh, so I read that bananas have a... <laughs> <laughs> what? Lots of potassium. Yeah. yeah. Because and potassium. potassium 40 is a natural emitter. For sure. So but it's bananas. just really low radioactive. Bananas. And that's why you are radioactive as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. All, all, um, if you take a Geiger counter with a low energy threshold to anything that it used to be alive, wood, you, a banana, um, you will get counts from potassium 40. Cool. What do we want to ski? With a banana in your hand. Um, ba- Bahamas. <laughs> I, I doubt it. I'm trying to think of... Okay, in the meanwhile, I will think about measuring nuances. Bio... No, so we should stop with <laughs> Bio... Okay, places to skip Bio Mountain. Bio Mountain. <laughs> um, I have no idea about places to skip. Measuring the light of the bee. Oh, oh no! no. Oh, okay. Well, we failed horribly on me. Not, not that horribly, but I mean, that was called by Stephanie. So now I really hope we get the letter S so that I can say that Stephanie is radioactive. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the third one is R. R. Oh, so close. Radioactivity. Oh, yeah, that's going to be easy, I guess. <laughs> Three, two, one. Now for the last round. Things that glow. Radio. Well, oh, yes. oh, everything is a ruler. Radio telescope. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yes. And uh, radium is an element that is uh, naturally radioactive. Yes, which radioactive. Are radioactive things. Yes. Is it written like radium? Like yes. This? Yes. And exactly. isn't it the one that basically killed Marie Curie? Uh, yes. Yeah. Well, extracting radium. Yeah. 
yeah. exposed her to so much radioactivity. Um, oh, we didn't find places to ski with 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 B. We have to no. Um, I know so many <laughs> ski resorts. resorts and well, yeah, resorts, but <laughs> but I can't come up with one on the spot. But yeah, ski resorts are places to ski. Oh, that's a resorts. bit of a cheap part. Yes, resorts, comma ski. <laughs> Sources of energy. With energy R. with R. Uh, and sources of energy. Radioactive. Yeah, material. radioactivity. <laughs> rocks. Also. <laughs> okay, so last one. Things point. that glow. What is glowing? No, radioactive material is very, very energetic. Um, Things that glow. What glows? That is not... Radioactive material <laughs> in, a, in a water tank. Yeah. Um, uh, rays. What? Rays. Rays. Yeah, like sun rays. <laughs> I don't know, like a ray of something. Like ah, rays. Like oh, like a sun ray. Yeah. R R. Gosh. <laughs> Letters are so hard nowadays. Yeah, sorry, but for things that glow, I can only think about radioactive. Yeah. Yeah, but I'm trying to not not say yeah. it. So also, it's not the radioactivity itself that glows; it's the interaction of the radioactivity. No, 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 no okay. Okay. whatever. Okay. <laughs> Let's go back and explain. No science this. lesson. Or no, no, yes, explain this. Well, no, but it, it's true. The 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 so the green glow that a lot of people associate to radioactivity comes from the the dials of the watch dials of um early 20th century that were painted with uh, uh, a paint that included radium in the in the mixture but it's not the radium that that glows it's the fluoride components the compounds that are mixed with the radium that um when they are hit by the by the radioactivity from the radium glow glow green. It's not the radium in itself oh. that glows. Yeah, because I mean, I would, I would. same thing with the um, um, the pool at a power plant um, has this nice blue glow from the Cherenkov light um, that is emitted by the high high energy gamma rays. Um, so it glows blue, but it's not it's not the gamma rays from the the spent fuel that are blue. It's the gamma rays from the Cherenkov process that are in the, well, not the gamma rays, the photons from the Cherenkov process that are in the blue part of the spectrum. Uh-huh. So yeah, I had in mind this, uh, this, this um, image of the opening uh, thing of the Simpsons, you know, with, with Homer Simpson, with the oh, glowing right. green broad. Fuel pellets are black, actually, generally. Oh. So much, so much unscientific stuff, fake news everywhere. That's true. Even in our, in our like childhood cartoons, great. <laughs> Thank you very much, Camille, for all for teaching us so much. This was a very, very interesting. I mean, still is is a very interesting topic. But now we move quickly to the science anecdote that Stephanie has prepared for us. Yes. What do What will you teach us? Um, today I'm going to talk about the Fermi problem, which I first read about this in a book, which I recommend to everyone. It's called The Fermi Solution by, and let me just check who the author is, uh, Hans Christian von Bayer. And it's called The Fermi Solution Essays on Science. I really recommend this book. It's it's not very thick, 
But each chapter talks about a different, well, almost like an anecdote of science. And one of them is about Fermi's um, calculation of the energy released by the atomic bomb. It's a really nice book. It's, it's about how scientists think and approach problems or, or little subjects about science in a really general level. So you don't have to be a scientist to, to follow this book. It's really, really good. I really like it. So anyway, about the Fermi solution or problem or question, you can call them all that. It's basically dealing with a problem that is apparently very hard to find a solution for, but you break it down into steps that are easily calculable if you make estimates. Basically, it's estimates that you can do what they call at the back of, of an envelope. So really simple calculations, and you have to make assumptions or estimates. But of course, these estimates have to be based on some sort of like reasonable. educated, irreasonable yeah. assumptions, yes. Educated guesses. Educated yes. guesses, yes. And that's how you can have an estimate to an, a very difficult question. Um, so it comes from Fermi, who was involved in the Manhattan Project, um, which were the ones doing this uh, nuclear bomb. Um, and during the first nuclear bomb testing, which they called the Trinity, the code was Trinity nuclear test, um, in 1945 in a desert of New Mexico, when the when they when the bomb blasted, he calculated how much energy was released. And how he did that was he just took a piece of paper, broke it into little pieces, and released it into the air and saw how much those pieces traveled. And by that, calculated how much energy was released. So he says, and this is a quote from a paper that which we, we can put a link to. He says, about 40 seconds after the explosion, the air blast reached me. I tried to estimate its strength by dropping about six feet small pieces of paper before, during, and after the passage of the blast wave. Since at the time there was no wind, I could observe very distinctly and actually measure the displacement of the pieces of paper that were in the process of falling while the blast was passing. The shift was about two and a half meters, which at the time I estimated to correspond to a blast that would be produced by 10,000 tons of TNT. The actual amount was around 20, but it's still a quite a good Mm -hmm. estimate to just do it by piece of paper and you know yeah. calculations so this is what you now refer to as a fermi problem or fermi solution and it's coming from that so i thought it was a very interesting way of approaching big problems by breaking them down into little pieces cool i didn't know this story me neither, me neither. Uh -huh. and i recommend the book you should read that book. yeah we will put the link to both the paper and the book yes. in the description box yes yes Okay, so I guess we came to an end. Camille, thank you very much for this very interesting episode. We had a lot of fun and we hope interesting, yeah. yeah, we hope you also had some fun. With <laughs> Absolutely. <us>. And <laughs> uh, yeah, thank you everyone and see you in two weeks. Bye. Thank you. The science. Basement.